Great. Thank you, Martin. Let's pray, shall we, as we look at that together and just think tonight about this theme of Easter and especially what truly happened on that first Easter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of the Lord Jesus, for his death, and also for this extraordinary story of his rising, witnessed on Easter morning. By your risen presence now, Lord, please speak to us, to our hearts, as well as to our minds, and draw us deeper in confidence and faith, but also in love and worship for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's a fact that without the event we're remembering today, Easter, there would be no Christianity. There will be no New Testament, no reason to write it. There will be no church, no reason for Christians to exist or gather. There will be no Notre Dame Cathedral. There will be no Handel's Messiah. There will be no Martin Luther, no Mona Lisa. And I think probably, actually, probably no abolition of slavery 200 years ago. Probably no gender equality. No education, but for the very rich. No hospices. No health service. The impact of the resurrection through Christian faith, is very deep indeed. The irony is that Easter is hardly recognised for what it truly is, the Christian version of Easter, in this post-Christian Britain. In our country, three out of four people say that Easter is primarily about a long bank holiday weekend, and what a fabulous weekend we've had weather-wise. It's about lots of chocolate, Uh, Less than one in four people say that Easter marks the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, even amongst those that call themselves Christians, a survey just a week or two ago found that only half of those actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's so-called Christians. Now, I want to argue it's not that people have tried the evidence for the resurrection and found it lacking... It's that we've lacked the courage to really try the evidence for ourselves. So what I want to do tonight in the the first part is to look at the evidence for what really happened on that Easter, that first Easter weekend. And then we will finish by looking at, well, so what? If it happened, what does it mean? You see, if you read the eyewitness accounts, we call them... Primarily, it's the four Gospels, of which Matthew, just read, is one. If you read those, you can't miss this very clear belief, this conviction, that the tomb was empty and Jesus appeared, that the resurrection happened. That's the defining thing for Christians, the moment that sparked the faith of those first disciples. Without that, Matthew would never have thought Jesus was important enough to write a whole Gospel about him. A, few, a couple of decades later. So one of the main reasons that the Gospels were written, that Matthew's written this Gospel, is to give us an account of what really happened so that we have the evidence there in front of us. So what we're going to do tonight, we're going to look at the evidence. Now, if you watch crime dramas, um, you're probably used to the kind of language of circumstantial evidence and uh, direct eyewitness testimony. 
circumstantial. That's evidence that the, the events, the objects around the scene could mean several things, but seem to support a, a particular theory of what happened, of which way the case should fall. Circumstances. The, the second is, is direct eyewitnesses, people that saw, that heard, that can tell you. So we'll look at those two, but first we'll look at a, a third kind of evidence. We're going to kind of zoom in from the first historical evidence, then the circumstantial, and then the eyewitness, the direct evidence. So the historical evidence, first of all, what is the historical evidence for Easter? Well, like the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four of them are careful historians. They are recording what Jesus did and said, and around Easter, what happened to Jesus. Matthew, therefore, he is not, and he does not see himself as, a novelist writing fiction with a wonderful spiritual meaning, but as a historian writing a Christian message. Matthew himself is almost certainly one of the 12 disciples, so therefore an eyewitness of Jesus himself. He had many opportunities to collect and check the information of what happened that first Easter from the eyewitnesses, the women in the story, from the disciples to whom Jesus appeared later and so on over several decades before he wrote it all for us. So, historically, he's a historian. Second historical thing, look at the first eyewitnesses. They are all women. Matthew mentions two. It sounds like there are actually three or four of them all together in this group. Because if you look at our, our reading, you've got it open there, Matthew 28, uh, page 1000, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week... So this is early Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Two women. And the gender matters for us because the historical accuracy of the resurrection is actually underpinned by the fact that the first witnesses are women. This is not, believe it or not, this is not a, a sexist thing to say. Um, but here is Matthew writing primarily for Jewish readers to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, the uh, the Son of God. And in Jewish tradition at that time, this is 2,000 years ago, according to someone called Josephus, a Jewish historian, the testimony of women counted less in court than that of men. In fact, he even said it's on a par with a criminal. Now, the world has changed since then, but that was the culture. And can you see what that's actually telling us? If you were making this up, and you wanted to persuade people to believe your story... You'd use men as your witnesses, because people believed men. So this has the ring of truth, doesn't it? So that's just historically. Matthew, using women as witnesses, makes the resurrection story not less but more believable. So those are the key historical witnesses. Secondly, what's the circumstantial evidence well, this is evidence from around, as it were, the crime scene. That if you put it together, points towards what really happened without being, as it were, a kind of speaking live eyewitness. Circumstances. And there are two things here, really. The big one is the first one, the obvious one, that the tomb is empty. Again, all the four gospel writers agree on this one. 
But an empty tomb, of course, on Easter morning, the tomb in which Jesus had been buried, it could mean several things, couldn't it? That's why it's circumstantial. What could have explained having an empty tomb? So some have said it could be that the women lost their way, perhaps in the early morning um, half light in their grief and they went to an unused tomb thinking it was the one that Jesus had been buried in and mistakenly they, they, they found it was empty not surprisingly unused and in fact Jesus was buried around the corner in another tomb now Matthew actually anticipates that, that theory himself if you look at the end of chapter 27 um, or just towards the end verse 61 it says Mary Magdalene as Jesus was buried in this tomb on Friday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that's the same two, you notice, were sitting there opposite the tomb. They followed Jesus not only to the cross, but to the burial. As Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in his tomb. They were there, they saw it. That's Matthew's way of saying they knew exactly where he was buried. Of course, another theory might be circumstantially, that Jesus' body had been stolen. It was common. Again, historians tell us, grave robbers would sometimes break into the tombs, particularly wealthy people, and Jesus wasn't, but Joseph was wealthy, to try and steal valuable things in the tomb. And so, perhaps, grave robbers did indeed steal the body, and the whole idea that he had risen, again, was just a fake, a mistake. Again, Matthew knows this theory. So at the end of chapter 27, again, he tells us that the Jewish council were worried about grave robbery, leading to rumours that Jesus had risen, because his body disappears. So they got Pilate, if you look at verse 62, the Roman governor, to put a guard on the tomb and to seal it with an imperial seal. Because they knew, verse 63, they said, Sir, to Pilate, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver... That's how they saw Jesus. Said, he promised, and he did in the Gospels, after three days I will rise again. So they persuade Pilate to put a guard on the tomb. And as Matthew tells us in, verse, in chapter 28, verse 2, <laughs> over that weekend there's a violent earthquake. God opens that tomb. An angel of the Lord comes down from heaven and rolls back the stone and sits on it. The soldiers are terrified by the earthquake and what happens, and they flee. They tell their superiors what has happened. And they're told, aren't they, in verse 13, to make up the story that they'd fallen asleep in the night and the disciples stole the body. So the soldiers knew what happened. They were there. They experienced the earthquake, but they're told, they're bribed, in fact, to tell a lie about falling asleep. Now, again, if you're a Roman soldier, you would not fall asleep on duty. It It was punishable with death, dereliction of duty. So, again, just the fact that they were prepared to go and tell that story and that their superiors were prepared to overlook it is evidence that this is a story they are making up about falling asleep. It's so unlikely that Roman guards would fall asleep on duty and then admit to it that there must be another explanation for what really happened. And of course the only explanation that fits the, the circumstantial evidence of the empty tomb is the third theory that Jesus actually has risen from the dead. Not the wrong tomb, not stolen, whilst the guards slept, 
but risen. So that's the empty tomb. Just very quickly, there is another big piece of circumstantial evidence which is hinted at here, and that's the changed lives of Jesus' followers from that day onwards. You need to read uh, Corinthians and the book of Acts to see much more of that. But the followers of Jesus, even here, the women are are changed, aren't they, from from grief to terror to joy. They're sent out at the end of Matthew's Gospel to go and tell the world that Jesus has risen. And those men and women were prepared to preach to the world this good news that they come to believe in and even to be oppressed and persecuted and beaten and some of them to be killed for it. So again, there could be other reasons for that. It's circumstantial, but it does seem to suggest, doesn't it, that something extraordinary has happened. And Jesus has risen. So we're going to keep moving now, because I want to look now at the direct evidence. But that's the historical evidence. Matthew the historian, the women. The circumstantial things, the empty tomb particularly, but also the the changed lives of those women. But let's look thirdly now at the, the most, always the most exciting and important evidence, testimony, in any legal case. That's the direct evidence. What do the eyewitnesses say happened? Well, Matthew brings forward for us the women as his eyewitnesses to give their testimony. And again, they give really two pieces of testimony. The first one is this, that they see an angel. They said, what did you see, women? What did you, that Easter morning, what happened? And they say, well, verse... Three, we arrived at the tomb and we saw an angel. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. He was sitting on the stone which was rolled back from the entrance. And then they say, verse 5, the angel spoke to us. He interpreted the significance of what's happened. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified He is not here. So here he is explaining the meaning of this. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. So there's evidence again. Have a look. That's where his body was. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So that's kind of end of message. That's all you need to know. So here is the women's, I think you'll agree, won't you? It's, it's very detailed, it's very precise, isn't it? Memory of what they saw and especially of what the angel said. Those words are critical. And there's no logical reason, historically, evidentially, to doubt that testimony. It's consistent from different perspectives with the words of the angel elsewhere in the other Gospels. It's reliable testimony. But the second testimony, they've seen the angel and heard his words, the second is actually that Jesus himself then met them. The angel met them, and then Jesus met them. So here's another piece of eyewitness testimony. What did he say? What happened when he met them? Well, look now at verse 8. Matthew says, the women hurried away from the tomb. Uh, you, can, you can hear, can't you, the, uh, the eyewitness recounting behind this. They hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples, and suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said, and they came to him. They clasped his feet and worshipped him. And 
Matthew goes on that he then spoke to them, similar words to the angel, don't be afraid, go and tell my brothers that I'm going to see them in Galilee and so on. And the only real difference, the particular thing, is he calls them now, go and tell my brothers. And we are just mentioning this this morning, that in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus uses the words, my brothers and sisters, he doesn't simply mean the 12 disciples. He always, in Matthew's Gospel, always means his wider followers, all those that follow him. So he's saying, I'm going to put to lots of others as well. And that's actually what happens in the New Testament witness to the resurrection. The other eyewitnesses. Uh, we've heard from the two Marys that Jesus appeared and uh, we fell down, we worshipped him and he spoke to us. But take three or four others very quickly. John. John's account, if you read the end of his gospel. He recalls that Jesus appears first to Mary in the garden by the tomb, then to ten of the disciples the same day. Thomas is missing on that occasion. Then later to all 11 of them, probably with other women present too. Then, John says, he also appeared to the disciples in Galilee by the lake. That's John's witness. Luke, he tells us a further appearance happened. Jesus appears to two of the disciples leaving Jerusalem that same day and walks with them and eats with them and reveals himself to them. And then, Another, a third extra witness, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, and we quoted that earlier in our service, in our creed. Jesus appears, says Paul, to Peter first, then to the twelve, then to more than 500. So that's surely that's the brothers and sisters, isn't it? More than 500 at the same time. So here's this very clear testimony direct testimony of many different people at many different moments that Jesus appeared to me. I saw him. He met me. He spoke to me. So skeptics have said, well, another explanation could be that they were hallucinating, that they wanted to see Jesus alive. They saw someone else and they dreamt that it was Jesus. But that's actually not the way these appearances work. They're not expecting to see him. He appears... And suddenly they realise, they believe, their eyes are opened that he's alive. Hallucinations don't generate the resurrection. The resurrection generates belief in the resurrection. So here is this incredible, unparalleled miracle that, that would shake the world, as I said at the beginning, that would transform faith, but also society and culture for all these hundreds of years since. Change with the hope, the love of the risen Christ. Now, we've looked at those three different areas of of testimony, haven't we? Rather like a, a lawyer would do in a court. The historical, the circumstantial, and then the direct evidence. If you want to think further about, if it would help you in your faith to really build into your faith, a strong foundation in that evidence, because it is compelling. Or if you know someone that might be helped by thinking more about that, then this book, a lovely book here called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb by Val Grieve. I think this is the best modern book on the evidence for the resurrection. Um, There have been several very good books, often written by lawyers, who set out to disprove the resurrection, but end up being converted 
when they start looking at the evidence. He actually is a lawyer as well, Val Grieve. I think it's the best modern one because it's very, very clear um, and he just tracks through the gospel stories in the way that we've done more briefly tonight. So I think we've got 20 of those to give away. If anyone wants to come and grab one for me tonight, I'd love to give you one for you or for someone else. I'll just find me afterwards at the door. So I promised that we wouldn't just leave it there. We'd actually say, well, well, so what? If this happened, does it matter? And of course, as I said at the beginning, it matters in so many ways, the way it's, it's changed our world. But here's three, I think, perhaps the most important ways for any one of us tonight, if we are a follower of Christ Lord and we know he's risen, or if we are a follower but are a little bit wobbly in our faith, or if we're searching. Three ways. Here's the first one. The resurrection that Jesus is alive tells us that he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God to be worshipped. The resurrection declares, says Paul, that he is son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. See, I hear people talk about the Easter events um, as if the main importance of them is that the risen Jesus spiritually changes my heart and makes me feel more joyful and peaceful. He does, it does, but that is not the main purpose and point and importance of the resurrection. It's, in a sense, it's not about me, it's about him. It declares to the world who this is. God is saying, this is my son. He's died for you on the cross, and I've raised him in triumph forever to reign. Love him, worship him. See, the point of Matthew, is, if you look at the women as they come to the tomb, it's not really all about the kind of why have they come. He doesn't even ask that, does he? Why have they come on Easter morning? It's all about what do they find when they get there? that he's risen. Paul says he was son of David in earthly life, but declared son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection doesn't just give you or me, if we're Christians, a feeling of joy. It does. But it gives us a God to worship and fall down before and thank and praise and adore. He is the king on the throne. He is more powerful than anything we fear or anything else that we give our love to, he's more beautiful and more perfect. His will is being done, even as I speak, and his word is there to be obeyed. He is God. He's son of God, but second, he's also the Lord to be proclaimed. Jesus, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, as we've seen, he sends them to Galilee, he then meets them in Galilee, and he sends them to the world to tell the world about him. We'll look at that actually next week, the end of Matthew's Gospel, what we call the Great Commission. Go and tell all people about me. Go and make disciples, baptising and teaching them in my name. He is Lord, and he's given us a mission. That's the Christian word we use, a mission. So again... People talk about how God has a wonderful purpose for your life and for my life. Well, yes, he does. But actually, the resurrection Easter, it's not about God helping me find my purpose. It's about God giving me his purpose to live for. That the world should hear about the Lord Jesus. That people that we love should find life and joy and hope in finding him too for eternity. 
He's a Lord to be proclaimed. And I don't know how you or I can call ourselves followers of Jesus if we won't tell the people around us about him. Because he's the greatest saviour and hope there is and he's given us the greatest and clearest purpose and mission to tell others. So he is a son of God to be worshipped. He's also the Lord to be proclaimed. And here's my third and last thing. That the resurrection also means Jesus is the hope of heaven to be enjoyed. The hope of heaven. If you just take your service sheet, you'll see at the top of the service sheet there, I've put a, as the reflection for the service tonight, a quote there from someone called Austin Farrer who was, well, many people say he was the greatest Anglican genius of the last century. You may say it doesn't, doesn't say much. Um, but he was a, a, actually a very, very able thinker, Christian writer, Bible student. Uh, you might not agree with everything he said, but a wonderful quote here about the resurrection. He says, the resurrection is not a miracle like any other. It's not even like water into wine or walking on water. It is a unique manifestation within this world in other words, in the, in the risen body of Christ, of the transition God makes for us out of this way of being into another. In other words, from this life into eternal life, into what we call heaven. And that's the hope. And if, if you have loved ones that you wonder, where have they gone? How can I know where they are if they're with God for eternity? And, that, and that's the real deep question and ache that we have, isn't it? for others and for ourselves. How do I know? Well, take the Anglican minister, Henry Francis Light. Many of you will know the famous hymn he wrote, Abide With Me. When Light penned that hymn, he was within months of his own death and he knew the time was coming. As he pondered his own death and he he read the resurrection story in the Gospels again, he began to write his own thoughts in the face of death, in verse. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Now for much of his life, apparently Henry Francis Light had feared death. But as he read the Easter story, and he reflected on it like that, he found a new confidence and a certain hope because of Christ's resurrection. So he went on in the last verse of that hymn, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Apparently his last words just before he died and went to see his saviour face to face were joy and peace. Jesus, son of God, Lord and hope of heaven to be enjoyed. That discovery of the risen Jesus, it's changed the lives of countless thousands and millions of Jesus' followers over these centuries, including mine. He's turned 
people from doubt to faith, from guilt to forgiveness, from fear to hope. How wonderful it would be if someone here tonight found the risen Jesus for yourself, even this evening, and walked from darkness to light, from fear to faith. You see, like those women in the story, the risen Jesus meets people and changes lives every day across this planet, even now. And every person who meets him today finds the same incredible story of being brought from guilt to peace, from grief to joy, from failure to triumph, from mourning to mission, from fear to confidence, and from doubt to worship. Let's pray. Maybe that someone here would you'd like to speak to someone afterwards and ask them to help you to keep exploring, perhaps even to cross that line of faith, walk through the door into eternal life. Perhaps some here will want to ask for stronger faith where we're feeling weak and doubts assail us. Others here want to pray for someone who's perhaps even facing their own mortality without hope as of this moment. Let's pray for each of ourselves this evening now. Lord, shine the light of your risen presence into our hearts and minds, we pray. Turn us from darkness to light. Turn us from those that feel far from you to those that are deeply in love with you from those that doubt to those that have confidence in your grace and your presence and your power and your mercy. And help us to be those that live in confidence in the hope you've given us, that carry your mission to the world that you've sent us into and that point others to the hope of heaven. We ask this in the risen and powerful and precious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.